Two percent. Two percent. Two percent. Uh, the two percent's right over here. Oh, hey, Jenna. I didn't know you shopped here. Uh, yeah. Anything to support local food. Know what I mean? I definitely do. Though that's not the only thing you do in the name of Good Eats, obviously. Well, true. I also host Eating Matters every Wednesday at 5 p.m. where we talk about food policy and how it impacts all of us. Be sure to tune in. All right, gotta get the plug in there. I get it. Yep, I'm hashtag shameless. You know what else you can do to support the local food community, right? Well, yeah. Make a donation to Heritage Radio Network, the world's pioneer food radio station. That's right. And I gotta call you out on the whole local thing. What do you mean? Well, The Farm Report, A Taste of the Past, Japan Eats. Those are shows that take you around the country and the world. I'll give you that. So how can listeners give their support? It's pretty easy. Just go to heritageradionetwork.org and click on the big red heart in the top right corner. It's pretty easy from there. Thanks. Hi there. I'm Greg from Kapow. Visit us at kapow.com to check out our unique collection of everyday reusable products designed to help you do more with less. C-U-P-P-O-W.com. Hey, 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 I'm Jimmy Carboni from Beer Sessions Radio. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Cooking Issues. This is Dave Arnold, your host of Cooking Issues, coming to you live on the Heritage Radio Network every Tuesday from like, I don't know, what is it, like 12, 15, something like that? To like 1 o'clock, you know, from Roberta's Pizzeria in Bushwick, Brooklyn, joined as usual with Nastasia the Hammer Lopez. How you doing, Stas? Good. Yeah? Mm-hmm. Everything good? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we got uh, Dave Id in the booth. How you doing? Good. How you doing, man? Doing all right. Doing all right. Uh, it's... Uh, it like I was flying home from New Orleans, and this is the only time in my life I fly home to a place freaking hotter than I was when I'm flying from New Orleans in the middle of the summer. I just got back from Tales of the Cocktail. Tales of the Cocktail, which is now, I don't know, like 11 years old or something like that. I've been going since, I think, like year two, the year right after Katrina mm-hmm. is the first year I, I went. And uh, originally, they started down there because they had no money, right? And so they wanted to have it in New Orleans, which is a big cocktail town. But they're like... What time of year does nobody but nobody want to go to New Orleans? It's right now. Like yeah. the height of July. It's like, you know, you know what the other convention was? Like, like maybe the second year I went down there at the same time? Swingers. The only other people, they're like, they're like it, don't, it don't matter. Like, you know, I don't, got, I don't got to take them out somewhere nice. We're all just going to, like, you know, meet up afterwards. Yeah, we're going to meet in the hotel room. Weird, huh? Whoa. Whoa. Anyway, uh, so I just got back from there. Uh... I demonstrated the centrifuge to uh, the uh, group of the caps, which they call them cocktail apprentices, but really they're this group of people, um, you know, uh, that take care of all the behind-the-house stuff at Tales of Cocktails. So there's something like, I forget what it was, it was something like 200,000 drinking cups that they, 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 with all the seminars and all the parties and events and stuff like that, so they do all the batching, the juicing, the the coordination, getting it done. So I demonstrated to those guys. I think they liked it. I made some banana hustino, which was good, uh, and I made a um, lime cordial. Uh, sorry, I made an orange cordial. So I took you know how you know how I always say orange juice when you clarify it tastes like sunny D, mm-hmm. right? And so it's not that useful because it doesn't taste that good. Well, I've been fermenting it at home, like I told you. Maybe if I, I'll, next time I try a bottle, if I like it, I'll bring it in and we'll try it on air. Okay, uh, it needs to age a little longer, I think. But uh, so I, I use it. Um, 
I'm trying to ferment it. But then the other thing I do is uh, I take the uh, clarified orange juice, I acid adjust it, and turn it to a cordial, like lime cordial. And unlike lime cordial, you don't have to heat it because uh, it doesn't go off as fast as a lime cordial, so it doesn't have to have that heated taste because a lot of people are like, I want my what are you doing? This lime cordial, it doesn't taste like it's fresh. Well, it's not fresh, you dunce. It's cordial. It's like a traditional flavor that's supposed to taste like it's been cooked, and you're supposed to like bring it on board a ship and keep yourself from getting scurvy, you moron. That's not supposed to taste fresh. Not every freaking drink with citrus in it has to taste like it was made, uh, thir- like the ingredients were made 13 seconds ago. That's not the freaking point of the cordial. But anyways, this uh, orange stuff, it lasts a long time. But let me tell you, I don't know, if, have I mentioned my like double acid cordial? Mm-hmm. I have? Mm-hmm. What is it then? Explain I don't know. it. I, know you you, know. I haven't freaking mentioned it. You don't even know what it is. You can't even describe it. That's I what I live with people. I can't because I don't listen to yeah. you on the oh, show, but uh, I'm sure yeah. you're All right. yeah. No, I don't it. think I have mentioned it. So the point is is that when you mix, uh, when you make lime cordial, typically it's one-to-one lime juice and sugar, right? Just like simple syrup. That's what people do. They add peel to it, and then they heat it up to a boil, and then they strain it, and then they bottle it, and that's cordial. All right. Now, uh, the inherent problem with that is, oh, by the way, is your sister going to call in today? No, she said she hasn't made anything this past week. Oh, my God. Just tequila and pie. Talk about dump meal. Just tequila? No, just a key lime pie. You don't make a key lime pie in a freaking slow cooker. I she dumped it together, but it wasn't in a... Who the hell makes key lime... You can't make key lime pie in a slow cooker. I know. First of all, key lime pie is perhaps the simplest dish on earth to construct. I mean... Please tell me she at least made her own graham cracker crust. I'll ask her. I mean, f- for God's sakes. Did she actually use... Did she use that bottled sure. key lime juice? I'm, I'm, I'm sure. People, people, people! You are better off using regular Persian slash beer slimes than bottled key lime juice. Do you agree with that, Nastasia? Mm-hmm. I like key limes. They're a pain to juice, though, huh? You remember when I bought that miniature juicer mm-hmm. in Mexico and I brought it back and I, and I did an angry juice and I broke it on day mm-hmm. one before we could ever use it mm-hmm. at, the, at the bar? Mm-hmm. Anyway. Oh, by the way, someone sent us mead. Oh, really? At least I hope it is. Oh, yeah, the, the meadery in New Jersey, Noah's Vice. They sent that over for you. All right, well, we're going to taste it. Uh, maybe we'll crack it open during the break and start tasting it. Then, but uh, so it's, wait, what's it called, the place? Noah's Vice. Noah's Vice. I thought Noah enjoyed grapes, and that was the problem, where he got naked and his kids had to cover him up. Yeah, I think that's what the name comes from. But this is made from honey, not from grapes. Mm. Noah got crunked out and dropped his drawers in front of his kids on account of wine. So they're saying that, that they're off of Noah's vice, and they're on this mead action. Maybe Noah had more vices than we knew about. Mm, Noah had more vices than we knew about. Is that like, that's, that's like it's somewhere in the liner notes for... For some band that I don't that I don't know, mm. I haven't thought of the name yet. But right, is my right or wrong? Someone correct me on my Bible here. I Noah got wasted on grape wine. Chat room, any Bible experts? Got wasted on grape wine, dropped his drawers, and the kids like looked the other way so as not to become abominations and like draped stuff over and were like, "Yo, Dad, sleep that one off." I believe. That is exactly what Jersey happened. Bible, yeah. That that's that's in the Jersey Bible, which someday Nastasia and I are gonna do. Yo, Dad, sleep that off. You know what I mean? It's like someday we're gonna do it. You know what I'm saying, Nastasia? Anyway. Hey, we got a caller. Oh yeah, caller, you're on the air. Mm. Caller, are you there? Caller. Don't think so. Caller. Hey. Hey, how's it going, Dave? Going all right. What's up? Good. I have a question for you about um, liqueur extracts and aging. Hmm. 
So I've been making some extracts using uh, 195 proof uh, grain alcohol. And the recipes I've looked at, uh, most of them require or recommend that the, <clears throat> excuse me, the extract uh, after adding the simple sugar be aged for a couple months uh, in a dark place. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering why that would be, if that's just an old wives' tale or what the case okay. for that. What kind of bottle is it in? I'm sorry, you're, you're barely coming in. Oh, well, there's a couple of things here. One, many, many products are actually photosensitive. It's not just um, – I mean, very few products have the extreme reaction to light that, um, uh, you know, the uh, humulones in um, hops have, right, where they just go skunky on you. But many, many things uh, are very reactive to UV light. So right. in general – Unless you know that something specifically is uh, light stable, uh, it is a very good idea to store it in the dark. That makes sense, but it's, it seems to be more for some kind of flavor development or flavor maturation or some kind of smoothing of the flavor out over time uh, after the extract, sugar, and water have been kind of combined. It's basically uh, a limoncello sort of recipe, except I've made, made it with raspberries or uh, basil, uh, and it says... Add to, you know after you add your simple syrup, uh, you know store it for a couple months before drinking. Right, I have okay. So I've more I've never made uh, this kind of thing with raspberry, but I've dealt with basil quite a lot uh, yep. and, and aging. And I can tell you for sure that um, the day you make it, right, it has uh, one taste, the fresh kind of basil taste, and then it does go through a period of it being not in my opinion not as good right uh, but you know different and uh changes and then after basil in particular stabilizes uh somewhere between three and six months i can't pin the exact date because um i didn't taste it every day but uh, and and that's at you know 40 or uh 50 proof you know what I mean? Uh, and so, yep. Yeah, and yep. so the uh, – and uh, that's for a distillate though, not for an infusion. But I'm assuming that it's a similar kind of, a, similar kind of, uh, of an issue. And um, it's, a, it's a myth that high-proof um, high uh, spirits don't age in the bottle. It's a complete myth. It, it, it depends. Some high-proof spirits – don't really age in the bottle. So whiskeys tend to stay pretty stable in the bottle. Vodka clearly stays stable in the bottle. Gins tend to stay stable in the bottle. But, uh, I mean, St. Germain does not stay stable in the bottle. Um, Chartreuse is, you know, stable-ish. But if you taste uh, Chartreuse that's like, you know, 15, 20 years old, it's definitely different. And it's not because the recipe has changed, but it's because – it's because it's aged. Now, the, Interesting. The, the thing about it, the thing that like, – so as a consumer who goes into making their own, the, the reason it's not apparent is because uh, you know, all, all commercial spirits have been developed to stay stable so that their customers kind of know what to expect, right? Right. Uh, and so you know, we're really only exposed to things that have been either stabilized or are made stable, which is why a lot of, uh, like, you know, vodka flavors, no offense to them, but they all taste fake because they have to be fake because the real ones would be horribly unstable if they actually made it for real. You know what I mean? Uh, and so, like, a lot of the flavors that are used are in, in liquors are dry, dried herbs or things like citrus peels, things that have, like, after some initial movement after they're made, and they can usually be held by the companies long enough for that 
that initial movement to happen, they eventually, you know, meld, everything gets along fine, and they're re- relatively stable. Uh, but part of the joy of making something yourself is to make things that uh, are not stable. Now, right, uh, right. One thing, one thing I will also say is that um, a lot of things are delicious. Some things just are wretched while they're going through their awkward phase. It's like you know, it's like the middle school of uh, of infusions. But it's yep. uh, you know, a, a lot of things taste good kind of all along, but just are different at every step of the way. Usually, you you love something when it's fresh because that's why you made it because it was delicious when it was fresh, right? I mean, that's kind of what happened. You your your palate was geared to making something fresh, especially you're not used to tasting with a mind uh, six or eight months from now because you don't know what's going to happen, right? So you right. you like this stuff that's fresh, and then as it changes. Almost invariably, you like it a little bit less as it starts to change uh, initially if you really liked it at, at the get-go. And that's when you need to like, uh, keep in your, in your, like, in your mind and in your, in your heart that this stuff might get good again later. Um, I think that the, when people write recipes, I think that they make uh, uh, huge mistakes when they talk about um, uh, things that need to be aged, with the exception of things that are kind of dangerous until they age out. I think uh, – you know, they know because they've made it a million times uh, that, you know, they might as well not taste it between now and, you know, in a couple of months when it's when it's ready. The truth of the right. matter is when you're learning, you should taste a little bit uh, as you go so that you can kind of get a feel for kind of what's changing and then get a feel for what you like and what, what the stability is. Because that's really the only way to, to learn. If you, you know, if you, if you just put something down and then don't taste it again and then right. You don't know what's happening. No, that makes sense. And what I was planning on doing is actually letting it, uh, letting this batch age for a couple months, uh, and taste it as it goes, and then make a fresh batch in a couple months from now, and then actually be able to taste them side by side, uh, two month old versus a fresh uh, extract in uh, liqueur. So, uh, okay, so so it's not a it's not an old wives' tale that uh, that something's happening to even just a simple syrup and uh, and an alcohol extract. Yeah, happening over time. Yes, yeah, some things are pretty dang stable, but a lot of things move. So it's also recipe by recipe, and, I'll, and I don't know whose recipe you're, you're following, but you know it's also a habit that you have. If let's say you make a lot of infusions, and it's been your experience that these things like move around and aren't really stabilized for um, you know like a couple of months, then you just start writing into all of your recipes to do that, whether or not you've actually tested it for that particular item or not. You see Got what it. I'm saying? And the same thing, by the way, goes for every recipe f- that cooks right, uh, chefs right, or even you know like uh, like bloggers, anything like this. Once you have some experience in your life that leads you to believe uh, you know that X, Y, or Z procedure is what you need to do, then even if you don't, maybe even sometimes do it yourself, you just include it in every recipe you ever write, so that uh, nobody comes back and like, but you didn't tell people to age it, and it needs to be aged, even if you haven't tested. I swear, like I do this, you know what I mean. It's a, it's just a, a sad fact of the way uh, the world works that you have to present these complete recipes to people for everything, for foods, for drinks, and and, uh, and you have to guard against these kind of uh, attacks or or worse, like having someone think that your recipe is bad. And so you include things in, in recipes that you haven't actually tested on that particular recipe. Or if you have tested, you haven't tested an A, B where you left that step out. It's just the, it's the nature of the beast. Awesome. All right. Well, thanks so much. All right. Let us know how it works. Talk later. All right, all right. So back back to this cordial. So you, so where we left off was this: if you take fifty percent 
uh, lime juice, right? Now, lime juice is, uh, we clarify first, obviously, it's 6% acidity, okay? And now you add uh, sugar, you add the equal uh, weight of sugar, assuming that the lime juice has no sugar in it, which is a little bit of a lie, you have a 50-50 simple syrup that's acidic, right? It's a cordial, cordial. Uh, Now, what's the inherent problem in that? Since you weren't listening to me, I'll tell you, right? Uh, the problem is that if what you want, when if most a lot of the drinks that I, I make have roughly equal amounts of uh, one-to-one simple syrup and uh, like lime or lemon juice in it, right? One-to-one. If anything, there's a little more acidity, a little more lime juice or a little more sugar than there is. Uh, sorry, a little more lime juice or a little more lemon juice than there is simple syrup, right? Right. Problem is if you if you Put a half ounce of that cordial into a drink. It contains the same amount of sugar as a half ounce of uh, of simple syrup, right? Does that make sense? Okay. Okay. Does it contain the same amount of acid as a half ounce of lime juice? No. No. Why? Because it's more. Because it's more. No, because there's more sugar in there. The sugar is taking up some of the space. So you have to add some extra acidity in the form of citric and malic acid back to the cordial to get the acidity such that the uh, that it has the actual acidity of lime juice. So what we do is we dope this or- orange juice. Normally you have to add uh, 32 uh, grams of uh, citric acid and 20 grams of malic acid to every liter of uh, orange juice to have it have the same acidity as lime. Uh, but you have to add a little more to make up for the space that the that the sugar is taking up. And then when you pour uh, an acid-adjusted or double-adjusted, in the case of orange, uh, cordial, every half ounce of that stuff is the same as pouring half ounce of simple syrup and a half ounce of... Um, of like acid, like lime juice, uh, but uh, you've only you, you've added a half ounce, ounce less of total liquid. Get it? Get mm-hmm. it? Got it? Good. Mm, mm, mm. You know what else? I had a question about New Orleans. Should I just deal with the question about New Orleans now? Yep. Mm. You didn't do anything interesting? No cooking interesting? Nothing? Ninda? Nada? Nothing. Did you, did you leave the city? No. You were trapped in the city with this like dead yeah. heat? Yeah. You couldn't borrow, borrow your buddy's car that you paid to fix? No. Hmm. All right. So, uh, Steve from Los Angeles is going to uh, New Orleans, and he said, uh, I'm going to be in New Orleans this coming weekend. Unfortunately, I'm missing out on Tales of the Cocktail. Are there any new, new, the key here is these new bars or restaurants you saw this year that I should check out? Steve from Los Angeles. Well, I actually only went to one um, new restaurant because I only had really... I had two dinners there. One was a, a spirited award where it's not like a normal – a spirited uh, uh, dinner where it tells the cocktail you go and like it's paired with like – it's not a normal dinner, right? Uh, but the second one I went to was at a new place. Get this. It's uh, – I didn't even know he had done this. Uh, you know John Besh out of New Orleans? Yeah, so John Besh teamed up with Aron Sanchez you know, from here, and they have a restaurant called Johnny Sanchez. Johnny Sanchez and uh, uh, Miles Landrum, who is a, knows Nick Wong, are, are you know one of my favorite interns of all time. Who's at the French Culinary is now at Sambar. Uh, is they went to school together, and so he's the uh, exec there. So I, I went there. It was good. You know what they had that I liked. First of all, for some reason in New Orleans, like uh, ever since uh, Cochon, which is like one of the famous, uh, uh, you know, favorite restaurants that we you know go to down there, down there, like pig ears and like they're big on pig ears and pig parts. So you know Chilaquiles, right? Mm-hmm. So these guys, instead of using tortillas, they do like a pig ear chilaquiles. What do you think? I don't know. What do you think? That's your I favorite it, thing. I thought it was good. What, chilaquiles? Yeah. No, pig ears. I love pig ears, and I, I love chilaquiles. So like doing an interpretation, like a chilaquiles interpretation with pig ears, I thought was good. I enjoyed it. 
Yeah. Then we also had uh, we had some squash blossoms, and we were we were we were we were saying how ridiculously uh, you know how squash blossoms here. It's like so sad when you go down in Mexico and there's billions and billions of squash blossoms for almost nothing. But it was good, very good. Yeah. So that's the only new place I recommend. I, I can recommend it. I didn't get to go to. Um, uh, What's it called? Shia, the, uh, which is not named after Shia LaBeouf, which is the place where they make their own pita. Everyone goes crazy for it. I didn't get to go. Uh, you know what I like? Do you like tourist things, Nastasia? Like sometimes? Sometimes. Do you know what? Like everyone, when they go down there, there's a place called, I don't even remember the name of it. I go to the Central Grocery that they make the, the muffaletta. That, that's the one that all mm-hmm. the tourists go to, right? And all the locals, they're like, you're a jerk. Why are you going to the place that all the tourists go? You got to have our muffaletta, our this, that, blah, blah, blah. Muffaletta is a sandwich they make in New Orleans, and it's all about the chopped up olives and, and you know, pickles and stuff that goes in the, in the, in the, it's all about that with this giant, giant, huge loaf of bread with the sesames on top. It looks like a giant overgrown sesame bun with, like, uh, you know, the meats and the cheeses and then the chopped up olives, olives and pepis, and, like, uh, pickled stuff on it, right? But you know what? Freaking, it's good. Crap on you. I enjoy it. Crap on all of you haters out there who just because, like, you know, since, you know, since whenever this has been the place people go, so what? It's still good. You know what I'm saying? You know what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. Here's another thing. I don't know whether you knew this. New Orleans, Louisiana is possibly the, the like, apogee, the height of personal injury lawyer advertising. I turned on... Uh, I was waking up in the morning getting dressed, so I turned on the TV, and it was one of these shows where everyone's trying to figure out who the dad is, and nobody knows. There's like eight guys up on stage, and nobody knows which one's the, the dad, and they have the paternity test, and there's all sorts of screaming and yelling and bouncers and stuff like that. Mori Povich. And, uh, and the commercials for the personal injuries attorneys are just amazing. It's like almost like a, it's an art form. The, my favorite, there's a, there's a guy, Morris Bart, which is the one that, that, remember it was in the news a while ago, that this kid was obsessed with this personal injury attorney and they wanted him to come to his birthday party, but he wouldn't come, but he sent a life-size cutout of himself and like a pen. <laughs> you know what I mean? So this kid's birthday party. But there's, a, there's a, a, an attorney there named Chip Forstall who's got like this like pol- polished, like bald head. And go online and look up Chip Forstall videos. He's hired all of these local Louisiana uh, musicians to sing various renditions of Chip Forstall. Chip Forstall, he's a man of integrity, and he wants to be your attorney. He knows the law. Chip Forstall takes care of it all. Personal injuries, big or small. But they do it. They do it in Dixieland jazz. There's a rap one that's not on the line yet because that's the one I saw down there. There's like uh, there's like some sort of like Mardi Gras version. They have like a, they have a gospel version of Chip Forstall takes care of it all with like real musicians. It's the craziest thing. Like I went down there thinking that Salino and Barnes was kind of the height of personal injury uh, attorney advertisement because Nastasi and I, to give you an idea of what our actual life is like, we never discuss anything serious. We just will sit down. Uh, silence for like an hour or so, like staring into the distance with dead eyes. And then all of a sudden, we'll just start singing the Salino and Barnes song. Salino and Barnes, right? Injury attorneys, right? Give me some. 800 what? 77777. No! 888-888. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we'll sing it. Call late. Anyway, so... Anyway, so I feel bad. Yet another thing that New York, you think you're the best at something, and you go somewhere else, and it turns out that we are mere infants. Children! 
like weaklings when it comes to personal injury lawyer advertisement. And I found out, I think, why in uh, in New Orleans. I looked it up. I was so intrigued by it that I looked it up. And when you, it turns out that in New Orleans uh, and in, in parishes down there in uh, Louisiana, the judges that are hearing these cases are elected, right? Right. So they need to have campaign. And get this. Unlike any other state in the union, the threshold for a jury trial for this stuff is $50,000. So any case that's below $50,000, let's say $49,999, people like Chip Forstall get to go directly in front of a judge who they're allowed to contribute to their campaigns regularly and they need to get elected and be like, hey, yo, judge, why don't we settle this for like $49.95? You know what I mean? Like $49K, then, you know, I'll give you some money. We'll all get out of here. This guy will get his money. Boom. Hence, uh, you have such awesome uh, advertisements. Uh, I think it's worth it. Anyway. I don't know. A little bit, a little bit of legal aside. Take for, a break. Not, wait, you want to take a break? Let's we'll drink some mead and we'll come back with more cooking issues? Yeah, we got a caller then, too. Oh, we got a caller? I'll take the caller and then we'll go to the Oh, you break. want to know? Okay. Yeah, yeah. All right, caller, you're on the air. Uh, hi, how you doing? Doing all right. This is, uh, this is Shane here. I'm calling from, from Dublin, Ireland. Oh, hey. Good, good to hear from uh, you. How, how's it going over there? Great, it's uh, it's grey and cloudy as usual. Oh, my favorite! I love that. Yeah, grey and cloudy, man. I wish I could live in a place that was always grey and cloudy. Yeah. Um, listen, I love the show. You guys are great. I've learned a lot. Thanks. What do you what do you what do you got for us? What do you what do you uh, what are you calling so, about? I'm um, I'm try- I'm looking at uh, restaurant equipment, and uh, I'm doing a lot of low temperature cooking. And I want to um, get some equipment in. I can't for searing for searing meats and vegetables, and I can't use charcoal because fire restrictions and it's difficult. Hmm. I just wanted to know if you have any recommendations for for other equipment that would be good. Like a, a cast iron pan is too small for my for the volume I'll be doing. So, like I looked at induction planches and things like this, and I don't know. If you have any recommendations for good searing equipment that's not charcoal. It's hard. So are you allowed to have – and I don't know what the economics are there, but do you have natural gas or, or not even natural gas? Uh, I might have natural gas. I'm, I'm trying to get the lines installed. So I might and I might not. So right. I'm, I'm, I'm interested in both natural gas and electric. Okay, so the, the, the deal is, I mean, anytime you're going to do like heavy searing work on, on low temperature, no matter what the source of, uh, of the heat is, you're going to make a, a crap ton of uh, smoke. And so yeah. you're going to need, like regardless of what the regulations are or anything else, you're going to need really good ventilation. So that's just a given. I'm just going to stipulate that right there. Um, okay. The it, it's it's hard. So like in the in New York, where now like they allow certain things they didn't used to. What everyone used to do in the tra- it, back in the day was they would have these uh, these gas these gas grill situations, right? And then they would just uh, the, the manufacturers knew you would do this. You would just throw wood on top of the gas and just get it completely roaring. But then whenever obviously someone was coming in to inspect. It's just a gas. Uh, it's just gas. You know what I mean. And you would throw on yeah. wood in quotes for smoking. You know what I mean. And then that would. Uh, that's how you kind of get around it. And those guys would jack the heat um, that way. Um, a lot in terms of your 
I mean, if you can get ga- gas I, and you're going to do a lot of this work, I would invest in like a deck broiler. And the, the deck broilers are just like a salamander, but they're stacked. Like it's like it's like three salamanders stacked together. And it's much okay. more than three times as powerful because if you've ever used a salamander, you just have that sweet spot right in the middle. And then it kind of radiates out. Whereas like the deck broiler, you have a giant sweet spot and it, you can they really scream. They really scream. Uh, and so I would recommend something like that. But that's only going to work kind of in an overfired situation. So if you're looking to finish, um, you know, uh, and you want to go electric, I don't have a lot of experience doing um, hardcore searing on. Uh, I've never used, for instance, an induction um, plancha. I've never used it. Yeah. Um, and uh, so I can't really, you know, I can't really um, speak to it. I'd say. That think a lot about what your any electric thing that you use. I've never used, and I've used some of them. I've never used an electric broiler that was worth spit. You know what I mean? Um, yeah. There just there's not enough there's not enough um, power output. I mean, the good news about using induction is it's so efficient in terms of heat delivery to the to the pan or, or the or the plancher or the griddle if it's specifically built that way that um, you know even though you know you only have a certain amount of power you can suck out of the wall it's providing a lot of that power to actually uh, to heat the, the food item that you're that you're talking about um, now the when you're doing low temperature uh, cooking uh, as I'm sure you're aware one of the main issues on the finish is that uh, unlike a traditional pan sear that you do before um, before you're, you're cooking or if you're going to pan sear and then finish in the oven traditional style um, the meat when you put it in is pretty or whatever it is is, is pretty floppy and can make good contact with the surface of the pan and or the griddle or the whatever and what that means is you get a nice even, um, even sear off uh, on the thing and it makes a lot of smoke However, if you're doing a post sear and you put that same piece of meat onto a griddle, then you're going to have very dark marks exactly where you're touching the pan. But unless you have yeah. a pretty hardcore weight on it, right, uh, you're not going to have an even um, an even sear across it. So how do we get around that? We paint a lot of oil on the on the meat, and we try to hope that there's some sort of connection between you know bridging the oil to the meat. But then as soon as you do that, you now have a lot lot more. Uh, smoke than you did yeah. back back in back in the day back before you know back you know old style so it, it, you can't really I mean, you can get it to work that way but you can't really uh, win that way and what happens is is if you're sitting there in the kitchen and you have only screaming pans you're constantly having to wipe it out uh, because just the amount of oil that you have to put on it is just uh, you know kind of in- intense now some people uh, you know like we used to when we were doing duck breasts and we were cooking low temp we made very very sure that when we put them in the bag we flattened it all out so that then when we took the duck breast and put it in the pan afterwards to do the crisp up on the skin that it was all going to be in contact and it would it would render right but if you don't you're pretty much hosed right some pieces of uh some products and i know that you know people get mad at me about it sometimes sometimes the best way to do is to deep fry it you know if you you deep fry it uh, you get like instant sear all the way around, uh, and e- the problem with it is, is that nobody notices as long as your oil is impeccable. But when you do a fry finish on something and like a steak, and the oil is even a little bit over, it's like it gets kind of it gets kind of ugly because they start to taste that oil on the outside. If um, 
If not, then as soon as you pull it out of the fryer, if the oil is good, you have you know someone wrap the towel around it, get the excess uh, 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 fat, off, you know, grease off the outside, and by the time you cut it, no one ever knows that it's been in oil. They just want to know why the crust is so nice. That is particularly useful on things like lamb racks, which are very hard to post-finish and hard to get a nice uh, crust on the outside without overcooking using um, low-temperature kind of techniques. So in my mind, things like lamb racks, big bone-in pieces like that work extremely well in the deep fryer, but you just have to – I mean like people don't like to think about it and also they don't like – you have to make sure that your oil is impeccable. So those are kind of what – what I'd use. There's no question that an induction um, an induction range can get cast iron pans hot enough. The problem with the cast iron pan on the induction range is, and I think we talked about this last week or the week before, is you really have to um, not like have it screaming right away because you'll notice on most induction things that you that you use. I mean, I, maybe the commercial ones. I haven't checked their burner pattern, but the burner pattern on inductions is relatively small, and so they tend to work well on um, things that have a big, uh, fast condu- uh, heat conductive surface. So, like the uh, aluminum sandwich pans that have like the slug in them that the induction works with, or the stainless that the induction works with, and then they have an aluminum uh, big billet, and that aluminum spreads the heat out relatively uh, quickly so you don't get major major hot spots um, with the induction with it with cast iron um, you're going to tend to heat the local area and it's going to take longer for it to be totally even now that point is moot if you have it on the induction thing for like five minutes and heating up but then you know you have something that's screaming hot all the time and unless you're going to chill it in between or let it cool down in between uh, orders which isn't really feasible in like a heavy environment like when you're going to get an order and you don't necessarily want to have to keep your pan going up and down and up and down so most you know most people want like if they're having a griddle they want a high heat griddle uh uh, you know that or a plancha that's running now you know the advantage there uh you know and the reason planches are so good is they can stay really hot but remember planches drain the grease down and out so you know a quick uh you know you take your 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 spatula and you scrape off the extra grease and now you're not smoking up your whole kitchen with the extra grease from before while you're waiting for the next order to come in um, but that said, planches aren't designed for uh, searing meats that have already been cooked. You can, with like a little squeezy bottle of oil. So you take a little squeezy bottle of oil and, psh, and then psh, you know hit it, and it can it can work. But you just have to get some practice. If you have a buddy that has one, I would definitely go to use it before you invest in it to make sure it fits your cooking style. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. So just quickly then uh, on the. I mean, I see a lot of a lot of planches and units, and giving different surface temperatures, like two thirty degrees. This is Celsius, and two fifty degrees. And for a conduction heat source, do you know what kind of what kind of temperature I'd be looking for for a post? I'll do a pre-sear to help the unevenness of the meat issues, right? Hopefully, right. And I'll do a post-sear. I but, did so on the cooking issues blog. I think it's there. I might, I might not have put that picture up, and I'll, I'll go look at it again. I, I once did a test where I was actually testing the cert, the temperature of the cast iron uh, during the thing to look at what uh, – and this is on a standard old cast iron pan, you know, like maybe 50, 60 years old, trying to figure out, like, what the best initial temperature is. Um, okay. 
Greg Blonder actually, who called into the show his uh, his blog. With, uh, you know, he did a test, and he has a thing I think with Meathead Goldwyn when he was on the show. Uh, you know, he did a test with a probe underneath, showing that in most cases the temperature drops very quickly right at the surface. Um, you know, because obviously it has to boil water off, um, and so you know he seems to think. His, he seems to think it doesn't matter that you get that that hot. My the research that I did shows that an initial very high heat in the pan does help. So I was getting the stuff up into the range of like 500 and, or something, which is which is uh, see 400 is 360 is 200, right? So I was getting I was probably getting up to like yeah to I was probably getting up in you know closer to what were you saying like 260 to what were you saying? Uh, they were. It's, it's, it ranges from two twenty to maybe two fifty. Is the ones I've seen. Yeah, I mean, look, I, I, I never. I, the ability to go hotter is always better because you can always turn it down, right? But my, yeah. you know, uh, it was. It, I had to wait until these things got very, very hot before I started seeing diminishing returns. I mean, eventually you get, you know, obviously what's called the, the light and frost effect, and it takes a, you know, a little longer for it even to know that it's searing, right? That's like I can stick my hand in liquid nitrogen and pull it out because. Um, because of vapor forms, but in actuality, what tends to happen is is that the, your plancha is a slug of uh, of metal. You put the meat down on it, and like you get, uh, it chills it right there eventually, and then you have to wait for the heat to come back in order to get up yeah. to its temperature. So they're they're storing heat a little bit. I know some people have moved to very very thin planchas, which work almost, I guess, like a like a Mexican comal, and those things don't store as much energy, and so then uh, they're relying a lot more on how much energy you're, you're combusting in heat to get their incredibly quick recovery rather than a thermal mass that allows it to recover. So you can kind of play either way. But I'll say this, and I might have said this on air, but I remember it was well over a decade ago I interviewed uh, Jose Andres relatively uh, soon after he had opened um, Atlantico, and I was doing an article on planches for uh, Food Arts Magazine at the time, and he, uh, I said to him, and you know, I knew all about planches, and I knew that they had this like, you know, a central heat, and then it would spread out and it was colder, and so people could then, you know, spatially arrange the stuff that wanted lower heat uh, over on the edge of the plancha, and stuff that wanted higher heat or searing heat in the middle of the plancha. Right? Sounds familiar. That's how a plancha is supposed to work. And he says, "No, I just buy a, a griddle and I set the." Uh, and so, you know, the American griddles have like uh, the one he had had four zones, four different burners. Right? So I'm assuming he sets one side. Uh, high and then the other side low and then he has a gradient he can move back because that's the way most people who use griddles that's how they think right so they have this spatial organization of heat much like a french uh, uh flat top hot, you know um and he's like oh no absolutely not i set the entire griddle to one temperature i was like what are you freaking crazy and he's like no i write all of my recipes such that everything only requires one temperature and i was like oh all right you know what I mean? And that kind of makes yeah. sense. So when you're doing a lot of low temperature work, you're not going to need a lot of these little kind of warming zones or places you can let things ride. You're going to want a big, even screaming mother of, of an object that you can just crank with. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Cool. All righty. Listen, well, uh, why don't you uh, tweet or call on in and let us know uh, what's going on. But I definitely, I, it's a huge recommendation. Don't trust anyone on their sales uh, salesmanship uh, on buying uh, equipment. Go use this stuff. Everybody sells you a bill of goods, and it's almost impossible, especially when you're shopping for something that you're going to have to cook with for years and years. And this goes whether you're going to go buy a combi oven or anything like this. Anyone will sell you anything, and everyone sounds good, and a lot of equipment is good. But the things I would ask your, your friends, 
friends or anyone around, how often does that sucker break with a piece of electrical equipment, especially if you're going to go induction? Like ask a bunch of people that have used it, not for like a, a week or for like, you know, as, as Jeffrey Steingarten says, like, you know, all good knives are good, just like puppies, right? It's like you want to know how is that thing after a year? How many service calls do they have to have? And if it breaks, like how fast are they going to come in and fix it? Because you don't want to build your business around, uh, you know, some sort of an induction range, and then it's going to die every uh, week and a half. Now, old induction units used to die constantly, right? The reason being that no one had adequate cooling in them, and they would try to do things like put an induction range over an oven, and the heat would get so intense. The electronics that they would just fry. Now, I think the, the modern inductions of the past, you know, six seven years, they've probably uh, dealt with a lot of that, you know, fixed a lot of that problem. But you want to make sure that that's not going to be an issue for you because you don't want to be down unless you have a, a spare. Uh, also, you know, as um, you know, as they say here, you got to make sure it's got uh, you, you know enough power. You know what I mean? You got to make sure that you like yeah. c- like cooking with it. And so, I highly recommend um, finding one. Any good big equipment manufacturer has a has someone that they can send you to to let you cook on it you know what i'm saying yeah. and then you you know like you know they'll know who bought it in your area and you can go uh check it out and see whether or not it suits it suits your your cooking style you you do not want to be saddled with a system like that that and regret it in 5 or 6 months because you know you you might have to live with it for years yeah great all right, all right well i hope that's helpful very helpful. Thanks a lot. All right, thanks. thanks for your time. All, right, all right, thanks. Let's go to a quick commercial break. Nastasi and I are going to crack some meat and come right back with cooking issues. Americans throw away 58 billion disposable cups every year. A lot of those cups will still be around long after you're dead. Kind of dark, I know, but I'm Greg from Kapow, and we decided to do something about it. We created the only glass travel mug that's 100% U.S. made. You can check it out alongside our complete line of everyday reusables at kapow.com. C-U-P-P-O-W.com. We are back. All right, so uh, David, tell me, David, you want to come taste this mead? Absolutely. Come, right, and then t- bring a cup, and then uh, tell me a little bit about it. Uh, I know nothing about it, so I'll just come and taste it. All right, you come and taste it. Cool. And while you're tasting it, a, uh, a shout out, big, th- a big shout out, thank you uh, for Neil Wallace for uh, donating to uh, Heritage Radio Network uh, on behalf of the Cooking Issues uh, broadcast. We appreciate it. Um, all right, so. While we're waiting for David to uh, bring a cup in here to taste this, maybe I should, I'll take care of this call. Yeah, uh, good. Oh, wait, there's a, a call. Question. Do I have a call? No, no call. Oh, okay, question. Take care of your thing. Yeah. So, uh, oh, before I do that, Russ, I'm not going to let you. Uh, let me tell, d- deal with Russ first. Remind me to talk to you about uh, Harold McGee and this, this thing he's interested in. Right, Nastasia? You remembering? Mm-hmm. It's going to have a word that you're not going to like, which I like. Okay. Yeah. Uh, Russ writes in from California. Uh, hey, uh, hey guys. I'm 23, basically broke, and love espresso. Been there, right? I mean, like, actually, I didn't really like espresso when I was 23. I didn't really like it until I was almost 30. I didn't drink coffee in college. I drank tea. What about you? Uh, I drank coffee in college. Yeah? Did you like tea or just coffee? Just coffee. 
Really? Mm-hmm. Is it because all those people in California drink tea and you hated those people? No. Just, just no. coffee head? Mm-hmm. No. All right. Um, as I understand it, a special machine quality comes down to pressure and temperature control. I'm glad that you didn't say 100% stability and you said uh, control because back in the day when I was first starting, um, everyone thought that the best of everything was complete consistency across the board, right? So you want the temperature to be completely consistent across the shot. You want the pressure to be con- completely consistent across uh, across the shot. And in fact, we now know that um, that's not the case and that in general, most people prefer um, shots where there's gradients in, in those uh, things over the course of of the shot, uh, not everyone, most people, and uh, the trick is being able to control and repeat it. So, like certain of the large commercial machines were, uh, you know, just made genius cups of espresso, not necessarily because they were um, they kept everything the same throughout the shot, but just they repeatedly delivered the same profile of temperature and pressure. Anyway, okay, a little bit of an aside, not really an aside. It's about the question, right? Unusually, it's actually about the question and not about like the price of eggs or something like that. Uh, supposedly, Ranchilio makes a machine that does a good job of this for about $700, and the people of the interweb seem to believe that everything cheaper is crap. I'm assuming you're talking about the Ranchilio Rocky. Uh, the Ranchilio Rocky is a, it's a good piece of equipment. I have one. Um, it is uh, The reason people uh, like it is that it, the bones of it are good, right? It's got a good boiler on it. It uses a good portafilter. Um, and so, like, that stuff is r- relatively uh, robust. Uh, also, it's like an old-school, like, American car in that when you open up the hood, there's not a lot of junk and garbage inside of there, so you can pretty much do whatever you want. So it became, very early on, like, you know, well, well over a decade ago, the machine to mod out, right? So the problem – and so then, you know, people would put PID controls in. People put dual PID controls in. Some people would add a second boiler to it. There's a lot of stuff out there and there's a lot of people that have already walked down the road in fact you can buy kits to mod it and i have to say that uh, a pid controlled uh rocky may i mean, sorry uh, uh sylvia did i say rocky before i meant sylvia rocky's the grinder uh ranchilio sylvia is um it's a good machine it makes a good cup of coffee it is a pain in the behind if you also like milk in your coffee i don't but my wife's a milk and coffee person and because it's not dual boiler, you have to uh, always like turn it on to steam, let it steam up, and then you have to get the temperature back down by pushing water through the uh, through the group head, and then let it stabilize again, and then blah 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 blah. So you know if you're making if you're 23 and you're broke, if you're also single and or and or nobody in your house likes anything but espresso, uh, uh, the the Sylvia is good, but apparently it's too expensive, uh, right? Because you're basically broke. All right, now. Uh, so, so then you say uh, you took a question a while back about the Rock R O K espresso maker, which goes for one hundred and fifty dollars. I can't remember what you said about it. Well, I haven't used it, right? Uh, I can't remember what you said about it, but the consensus seems to be that it is possible to get a good espresso from it. However, it is difficult, if not impossible, to do so consistently as the pressure is regulated by hand. Uh, I'm considering buying one and adding a spring to the system to regulate the pressure. I have a machine shop at my disposal and can do this with relative ease, but I wanted to get your take on whether or not it would work well potentially before we. Wasting the time and money involved. Uh, also, any tips on lucking into a professional espresso machine at auction for almost no money, as you did, would be much appreciated. Thanks, Russ from California. All right. So first of all, let me let me tackle these in reverse order. So, buying something at uh, an auction 
is a really good way to go. What you need to find is an auction where nobody else there wants a piece of equipment. So um, usually the way you do that is you find something. So if you go on eBay, you can buy an espresso machine commercial uh, that is broken for some reason or another. And then if you're willing to fix it or go through the trouble of fixing it, then uh, then you can do it. I would make 100% sure that the parts are available, like get to know someone, because parts on an espresso machine can get very, very expensive very quickly. But for instance, let's say there's an espresso machine out there and the pump is broken. Most people who service espresso machines know how easy it is to get a new pump. And so you wouldn't get a big discount because they would buy it and just fix the pump rather than give you something for free. But maybe you find some knucklehead who has a machine and just wants to get rid of it at an auction. So you, what you need to go into a restaurant auction is patience. Uh, the unfortunate thing is back when I was, uh, you know, starting in the espresso world, it was, uh, you know, people on the on the web, the, the general consensus was that home people, you should just forget about making espresso, right? And the only people that were making uh, espresso at home with machines that they liked were the people who were using the... Um, uh, the Euro Piccolos, the, the hand uh, lever machines. Now, um, so there you have it. Um, the Rock, uh, I guess it's pronounced Rock, what it is is like a dual – what would you describe this motion, Nastasia? This um. – like – like the Hulk, when the Hulk's going, ah, and he lifts up by his shoulders and then, and then tries to make his pecs huge by going down, it's that kind of emotion. You're grabbing two handles and you're pushing down to provide the pressure, and you're pushing a piston down into uh, into a column of water that's heated, and then in in through the uh, in through the uh, ground espresso. Now, uh, in actuality, uh, some of the best, in fact, still the best cups of coffee that I've had, uh, espresso, have been out, out, some of the best, have been out of lever machines, and they're working on uh, springs. So springs are good. The problem with modifying the spring on that machine is that um, how would you do it? You have to pull up on it, right? And then if you have the spring pulling, the easiest way to do it would be to have springs pulling the handles down, but then you're going to have a difficult time levering them up and then holding them there for the infusion section and then letting them go. So it's possible that you could... I guess make some sort of crossbow scenario where you just lift it up and then crank something up and use that to kind of pull it down. Yeah, it looks kind of like a bow motion. Yeah, we got like 30 seconds. Yeah. Oh, geez. All right, all right, all right. Listen, uh, listen. I'll get, I'll get back. Russ, we'll deal again next week because I'll start to talk to you. You need to spend money on a grinder. We need to worry about grinder as much as you do about machine. So I'll get back to that. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about the mead. David, tell me quickly about the mead. Uh, it's delicious. Notes of popcorn at the end. Yeah, it's a, it's it's it's, it's not as dry as it, uh, but it's not cloyingly sweet either. I think it's good. I would yeah. have this one after dinner. What about you, Nastasia? Nice little spice to it. No, it's, what 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 are your issues? Some flavor, some some flavor in it. I don't like the spicy one. I like it. It's a, but you don't think? I think it's from the. I think it's from the. That's the honey. That's you. Just, yeah. That's the note of the honey. Give a shout out to the company again, David. Noah's Vice Meadery in New Jersey. Noah's Vice Meadery. Thank you. And uh, I, I enjoy it. I'm going to have some more uh, during lunch. And on the way out, let me just say this. I was with Harold McGee. All of you go on the New York uh, Botanical Garden. Uh, go to their corpse flower cam. There's a rare corpse flower that's about to bloom any day now. And hopefully Harold and I are going to go. It smells like rotting flesh. It's a close relative of the same thing that makes konjac. Uh, and the name of it is – ready for it, Nastasia? The name of the genus. It's the largest inflorescence in the world – in the world – Amorphophallus titanum. Mm -hmm. Amorphophallus titanum. Because if your phallus is going to be poorly formed, you at least want it to be titanic. Cooking issues. (laughs) 
for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes Store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening. Thank you.